You know what really makes us mad is wasting money on CDs with only one or two good songs. Yeah. Tell them about punk. What's up, posers? Welcome to Funk Lotto Pod. I'm your co-host, Justin Hensley. I am your other co-host, Dylan Hensley. And this is the show where we assign our guests a year, and they choose one punk, hardcore, emo, or punk-adjacent album from that year for us to talk about. Today, we are talking to Ian Miller of many, many, many bands, but most notably, Kowloon Walled City, who just released their fourth full-length piece work. Our last year in 2021 on Neurot Recordings and Gilead Media. Um, he's also been in so many other bands, which we'll talk about in the show. What are we talking about today? We're talking about the year 1981. Uh, the record is Wild Gift by X. So revisiting X for the second time. Uh, still have not done either of the big records. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Talking all around them. <laughs> we'll get to them one day. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. It depends on what our guests choose. <laughs> yeah, and if you want more 1981 and X talk, uh, head over to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash punklottopod, where we are doing a master punk theater on the decline of Western civilization, part one. An all-timer. This is one of the big punk movies. Yeah. I wanted to kind of stay away from documentaries originally, but I don't know. This one's too big, I think, to not talk about. This one's big, and there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, because I feel like, I think that's been my issue with thinking about doing a documentary is, um, what are you going to talk about, really? So, luckily this one I think you get a lot out of, so. And then you could follow us on all forms of social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at PunkLottoPod, uh, email is PunkLottoPod at gmail.com, we have voicemail, it's 202-688-PUNK, uh, I'm gonna play you the two voicemails that, uh, <laughs> we got recently and on next week's episode because i think we'll have plenty of time to talk next week yeah some fun fun stuff on the voicemail and then punklottopod.substack.com i still need to post my last 100 uh of the top 200 but i kind of forgot about that but maybe i'll just throw it up there real quick for people to read but yeah so enjoy this conversation with ian miller this is a really good episode and uh enjoy the show
here with ian miller of kowloon walled city is kowloon kowloon is that how we say it as far as i am aware yes that sounds right to me (laughs) well thank you for joining us thanks Uh, for having me this is uh yeah i'm looking forward to talking about this record and getting to know you guys yeah 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 uh we'll talk about a little bit more when we get to the actual record but uh your selection surprised me a little bit but well it was yeah i mean we can get into it now or later but like 81 was kind of a weird year there was like you know, I, w- I figured I was going to pick a hardcore record, but like when you look at the stuff that came out during that year, there was some monumental releases in like 79, 80, and then like 83, 84. And those like early 80s years, at least for like American hardcore, wasn't a whole lot going on. So I, you know, I took a left field selection. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely talk about that more too when we get into the year because yeah, 81, interesting, interesting year. But, you know, for everyone to kind of get to know you, uh, let's see, Kowloon, Walled City just released a new record called Piecework that came out last year. Uh, how was uh, how was the rea- the reaction to that one? Oh man, I've been uh, thrilled with the reaction. People seem to, um, after, let's see, this is our third, third full length with John with this, well, not the full, third full length with this lineup. It's our mm-hmm. first full length with this lineup. Our original drummer moved away and we replaced him with Dan Snedden from Early Graves. And this is the first album that, that Dan is on. But this is our third record with John. So with the writing team of, of John Howell and Scott Evans, Scott Evans, along with me, is the other founding member. Um, I feel like people are finally getting what we're 
doing. Um, so it was very <laughs> gratifying, very satisfying to see people sort of like, oh, okay, yeah, this is this is that thing they do only more so. And that's like, that's kind of what we were looking to do. We're, um, we don't make uh, radical departures from record to record. It's more just like subtle refinements. And I feel like that's what piecework was. Like it's like another uh, logical um, step in, you know, another logical piece in the, in the arc of what we're doing. And people seem to get it, and it's very, very heartening and gratifying to see. Yeah, I, I remember, I'm trying to think of the first time I, I even heard of the band. It was probably when the second record came out, because I feel like that one got a lot more attention. Yeah, so the second full length was Container Ships. That would have been our third record overall, but yeah, for, for sure the second full length, and that was the first one with John. Yeah, and it, and it was like, I, I probably saw it in like magazines like Decibel or like Terrorizer, or like one of those kind of like heavy magazines mm-hmm. so that's, that's probably my introduction to y'all because i was listening to a lot more of that kind of stuff around that time period that it's had so many different like j- j- terms thrown around like, you know like there's post metal there's like sludge there's you know the what do they call it? neurosis like atmospheric tribal you know like all that <laughs> stuff <laughs> every, every genre uh, descriptor is worse than the previous one. right like, <laughs> none of them are none of it is helpful at all uh I, we do we know we i'm terrible at describing the stuff that i do we just do what we do and this is right. what, you know take it or leave it i guess but like yeah i know i know that they are there these descriptors are a necessary evil these genre names um but i i feel like oftentimes they do more harm than good <laughs> Yeah. I feel like too though, like so that sound that maybe on the very first record or the or the second record, like it maybe fit in that lane, I guess. But also that, sure. that style has also faded a little bit and it's morphed in its own way. Like mm-hmm. like your band too has like it when listening to the newest record, I was actually surprised at how I don't know how how like crisp it sounded. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah, absolutely. We um I think the the creative brief initially between John and Scott, who write the you know the vast majority of the material, was that they were going to try and write a record with no distortion, just clean guitars. Oh, okay. So yeah. I mean, and we you know we eventually had to like uh, soften or modify that approach. Like there <laughs> yeah. there are definitely like you know there are definitely some grit happening, some gain happening on the guitars, but like uh, it turns out that we couldn't just do a naked, uh, undistorted <laughs> record. But that was. That was at least the original approach. And, you know, obviously, like I said, we had to back off from that. But yeah. And Scott, uh, I feel like over Scott is the only person who's ever recorded our band. Uh, Scott is the singer, guitar player and prime mover of the band. Um, And he's gotten better and better and better. And he has a really specific thing that he does with us and with some of the other bands that he records. Like, you know, you, you feel like you're in a physical space with a band that's playing stuff. We all recorded in the same room at the same time. Yes, there are overdubs, but nothing is on a grid. You know, uh, this is all just real people playing in a room. And I think with the way he records and mixes, you get that. You feel like there is a sense of physical space, which is missing from so many heavy records, I feel like. You know, they feel like, now I'm going to use Mashuga as like the other end of the <laughs> spectrum. Love Mashuga and everything that they've ever done, but you feel like they are beaming their uh, music from a satellite in outer space, right? There is no sense of a physical space. They are just freakishly talented robot people like performing <laughs> this insane music, and it's great, and I love it. But we're over here, like we can barely play. Uh, but what we can do is capture what it feels like to be in a space with people moving air. 
with amplifiers and drums. Yeah, that's like that's really the exact feeling you get listening to the new record. Because I was the, the the production was the thing that stood out to me the most. I was just yeah. like, ah, oh, this sounds really unique in this in this style of music. Because like metal in in general, I feel has gone in a more like very glossy production. Like I guess the budgets for metal is just getting bigger and bigger. So especially if you do kind of if you're anyway at all like the Meshuggah lane of stuff or even mm-hmm. even other like genres like power metal death metal are getting just a lot cleaner or just more produced sounding sure so like there's there's something a little bit more raw about this record like this record reminded me more of something like like helmet you know or like mm. one of those one of those noise rock alt groove metal bands from the 90s or whatever you want <laughs> to call that style interesting but, yeah I mean, that stuff's definitely in our DNA. You know, we uh, uh, there's like Scott and, and the original drummer, Jeff, were huge helmet uh, people. Shallow North Dakota is another touchstone for, for this band. We love them. Um, but yeah, there's not a there's certainly not a whole lot of groove happening. Or maybe there is. Maybe it's Dan's drumming. Like Dan is a, a unique and really amazing drummer. I play in another band with him and have done other projects with Dan. And he's uh, definitely brings a different approach. Uh, percussive rhythmic approach to the band than Jeff, our previous drummer did. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've actually got like a really wide uh, resume uh, uh, that spans <laughs> m- many different types of music. That's, that's one way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're very, it's a diverse, diverse portfolio. <laughs> yes. <laughs> got to diversify your bonds. <laughs> <clears throat> when uh, it's funny, I messaged Dylan this. When I was like, I was like, okay, what all? I went to Discogs and just like clicked on your name to see what else you'd worked on, and I was like, okay, yeah, that's cool. I, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then I got to like Skank and Pickle. What? <laughs> yeah. So when uh, when my partner and I moved to Oakland in 1990, I guess it was um, the second band that I ever put together was like a ska punk band because that's what was happening. We were more like um, I don't know. We were, we were a mess. We were just like that's what people were doing in the Bay Area. It was like every genre mixed together so you'd have like all these funk metal bands like i mean primus obviously were huge but there were other bands like mordred mcm and the monster uh fungo mungo like just people who came out of a metal background but were you know had discovered like indie rock and funk like funk has always been huge in the bay area we have a a long lineage of stuff like, you know, Santana and Tower of Power and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So people were melding all these different genres. And my band, Hoodlum Empire, we played ska and metal and hardcore and funk. We had a DJ at one point and it was just like, you know, you throw everything in the kitchen sink in there. And that's how I got connected up with the Skank and Pickle folks so that when they needed a bass player to replace their original bass player, Mike, uh, I was the person they asked and I played with them for two years and got to see the world and it was awesome. Yeah, I, and then, and then I kept going down the line. I was like, um, uh, "Is it Jade from AFI? You were in a band with, right?" Yeah, we were. You were in like sort of a, a throwback youth crew band called Redemption '87. Yeah, and in then the like mid to late '90s. Yeah, you've worked with like Thrice members too. Sure. Yeah, two <laughs> bands. There's uh, there's Puig Destroyer, which is our baseball themed mm-hmm. metal band, and then Less Art, which is. Uh, Two guys from Thrice, and then me and John from Kelly and Wild City, and Mike Minnick, who's back singing with Curl Up and Die now. And that's uh, theoret- that, theoretically, that's still a band, and we're talking about doing another record. Um, so, yeah, we have one record out on Gilead Media that came out, I think, five years ago now. But that's still, at least theoretically, a thing. Yeah, I, I was just impressed with just like, 
you've had all these like fun little like worked with these kind of like big names within like the different genres of punk and it's it, and it's a mini offshoot so it's just funny to be like oh wow well, yeah yeah i worked with mike park and i worked with <laughs> the guy from afi and i worked with thrice guy you know it's just a fun like uh, know a little bit of everybody yeah that's i mean that's kind of how it is in the bay it's like uh i don't know it's kind of a small musical world and so if you stick around long enough you're gonna you know develop those relationships and you know maybe if you're uh, if, if, if stuff breaks your way, you get the opportunity to play with a bunch of different people. It's great. Yeah, I was always wondered how bands like Neurosis were always like playing around with like Green Day people and like you know, uh, you know, Sam I Am, like all that, yep. all that kind of stuff was around the same time. So it makes a little bit more sense though. For sure. Um, you mentioned Gilead. This is what the second time working with them with Kowloon. Yes, I want to say yes. Um, I think so. I think maybe I, I, the third. Uh, yeah. So we've done the last two records have been sort of co-releases with Gilead and Neurot. Um, yeah. And we're we've been super stoked with that those relationships and uh, continues to be a great working relationship with both groups, both both labels, I guess. Yeah, I mean they're both really like Neurot, especially you know being known for you know Neurosis started record label and uh, Gilead, who's been doing some. This year alone, like they put out like four or five records that I was just like, these are amazing bands. Yeah. <laughs> Adam, uh, yeah, has curated a, a pretty incredible catalog to this point. We're happy to be part of it. Yeah, so it's it's a good it's a good uh, company that you're in there. Um, For sure. Let's see. I'm trying to think if there's any other questions before I get to my final one. Um, you mentioned well, we can do this. So you mentioned Calhoun's got a show scheduled currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to go ahead and plug that so that uh... oh man uh, I should have had this prepared we're playing in Sacramento in February um, I don't know I, I yeah all this stuff is written in very faint pencil at this point because who knows we've had to cancel and postpone and reschedule so many things um, I, yeah, I don't even know if I feel great about promoting at this point although it is you know it has been announced and technically we're playing Sacramento I think on the 16th of, of February Um and it's our friend Chris's birthday show, Chris Limos, and we're pumped to do that. And fingers crossed that Omicron sort of starts to die down and we can actually get up there and play. Yeah, I mean, it was February last year when it kind of like died down again. So like hopefully mm-hmm. that, that, I think, the yeah, all the February stuff that's lined up, it's Mike, fingers crossed, like yeah. maybe Coin flip. it'll happen. <laughs> I think everybody's banking more on like... March, March should be fine, right? <laughs> yeah, March, April for sure. I feel much better about that. But I don't, who, who knows when February comes, we may be singing a different tune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We never know. <laughs> Is there anything coming out in 2022 that you're at liberty to discuss? Oh, for Kowloon, no, man. We write so slowly. Um, yeah. There is no, we have, we have not even written one new note of music since uh, Piecework. So maybe Scott and John have some riffs cooking, but uh, I certainly don't know any additional songs. Um, I do a, a solo electronic project called Interesting Times Gang, and I've got uh, a couple of releases slotted for 2022. There'll be a five song EP that I'm just uh, finalizing now, and then hopefully a full length later on. Uh, in 2022, in the spring, perhaps. I play in an a electronic dub project with my buddy Graham, which is called Collapse Culture, and we have something on the books for 2022. And I also play in a band called Strange Light. That's just sort of more like SoCal punk stuff. And we have a four-song EP that just came out at the end of the year. 
you can get that. It's called The World Needs Laughter. And then I play in another band called No Lights, which is more like dark punk, uh, death rock stuff. And uh, we will certainly be putting something out in 22. So I am very busy, but Kowloon yeah. is not necessarily <laughs> that busy. It's slow. It's slow going. It's painstaking. And uh, yeah, it'll get yeah. done eventually. Yeah, I think Strange Light will be of interest to some of our listeners too, because there's folks from uh, uh, Western Addiction mm-hmm. and Swinging Utters in that band. So like, yeah, definitely worth checking out if that's your lane. If you're not into the the heavy stuff, you know, our our listeners cover a wide range of styles too. So sure, <laughs> which is it's it's great because Dylan and I both also listen to just about like everything. So it's we're well rounded listeners. I I like to think, but excellent. Well, that's awesome. Well, cool. So let's get into the format then. So uh, the premise of the show is we assign our guests a year, and they choose one punk, hardcore, emo, or punk-adjacent album from that year. And so when I asked you what decade you would be most interested in talking about, you said the 80s, and I was like, all right, let's do 1981. Um, And you mentioned it a little bit, but... uh, what are some other albums that you were considering talking about that came out in 81? I have yeah. that chart here. I can send it to y'all if Let's you want. Let's do that. It. Let me look at the chart. I mean, it, for me, it was a pretty obvious choice. Like, you know, uh, this was, there might have been some, like choice 1B and 1C, but this was clearly choice 1A. I mean, when I was thinking 80s, I'm like, oh, great. I'm going to get like uh, Out of Step or Rock for Light or something like that. And then you went earlier, you gave yeah. me. You gave me 81s. I'm like, oh, and they're strangely like, like I said, there's like a little lull in uh, in the hardcore records. I mean, I could have gone, could have gone damaged. That would have been an obvious pick. You know, I have a giant uh, rise above uh, tattoo on my back. Um, but I don't know. Um, I could have gone Youth of America, but that's like an EP, and that didn't have the same sort of impact that it did that Wild Gift. Like Wild Gift is one of those things. Uh, the, the record that I picked is Wild mm. Gift by X. It's one of those time and place things. Like when. I found it. I was like, what the fuck is this? I'd never heard anything like it. Um, I think the first time I ever heard X was a college roommate had Under the Big Black Sun. I'm like, this is crazy. I have literally never heard anything like this before. I recognize that it was heavy and intense, but not like they're like, you want to talk about no distortion. Like Billy Zoom is just playing like a semi-hollow Gretsch and like it's a big fat rockabilly tone and it's amazing. Everything about his playing is phenomenal. But uh, I didn't have any frame of reference for it. And then discovering that era of X, like the the pre-Electra and then the early Electra records, like set me down this crazy path of trying to find every other sort of punkabilly adjacent act. Um, and for folks who don't know, there was like a big, at least in the, I'm going to talk about, I, I found all these records in the late 80s. So there were these bands like uh, Tex and the Horseheads, Jason and the Scorchers. I guess you could throw the Gun Club in there. Uh, the Blasters, yeah. like all these bands who were playing a sort of like revved up rockabilly thing that was punk adjacent. We had a band. Um, I, I was living in New Orleans at the time. There was a band from Baton Rouge called uh, Dash Rip Rock who were like local heroes. And they hewed more closely to like a just a really revved up uh, country thing that was like less punk rock. But they absolutely had like heavy punk influence. Um, and we would go see them all the time. So like. Finding finding this record and Under the Big Black Sun, yeah, like set me on this journey um, in a way that a lot of these other records, uh, you know, didn't kind of have that same impact. It was very tempting to pick something like October by U2, which to me is like the last great U2 record. I really <laughs> loved. I really loved the Boy and War and October are like a holy trinity for me as an older person. 
uh, fuck, Flowers of Romance, PIL. See, now the Duritty column. Like, I could have picked any of these. Uh, yeah. Solid Gold by Gang of Four. All right, so it's not as clear-cut a choice as maybe I first made it out to be. <laughs> but I will say that, like, yeah, Wild Gift, um, the, 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 when I discovered it and sort of the long tail of its influence on my life um, is, is just you can't, can't kind of be overstated. Yeah. For, for context, for the listeners, so 81 is also the same year as, yeah, you mentioned Damaged by Black Flag. Uh, there's a Cure record, Faith, one of the earlier Cure records. Um, definitely could have picked beauty and the beat by the go-go's because i bought that when it came out when i was 13 and like listened to nothing else probably for a solid year that was an incredibly uh, uh impactful record for me as well yeah that's like an amazing oh i think we've talked about this before on the show before but like i think the go-go's kind of get overlooked by more modern absolutely. listeners like I, yeah i mean that record that's a perfect record honestly like it's absolutely brilliant I can't say enough good things about it. I think I think younger listeners who are just only know them kind of as just like, oh yeah, they're that '80s band that you hear on <laughs> '80s playlists, you know, like totally a throwback with, band with those two songs, yeah, yeah, just mm-hmm. two songs, no, no yep. more. N- certainly not like what three fantastic records and yeah, yeah, I, I can't, yeah. I, if anybody, like, if you have, if folks haven't spent time with Beauty and the Beat, please go back and revisit yeah. that one. It's it's flawless. Dylan, what are some other big records that came out this year? Um, I, it's an interesting year. Uh, I mean, Juju by Susie and the Banshees is a great record. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty good year for post-punk and gothic Absolutely. stuff in general. Uh, Movement by New Order came out that year. So, uh, that one was tempting. I, I hovered over that one for a second. Yeah. But if you were, I kind of see why, why you went with the choice that you went with. If you were going, if you're going to the eighties and you're thinking hardcore, yeah. And you go look at this year, it's Black Flag mm-hmm. and the Wipers doing like kraut rock almost. <laughs> and like Oh, there is that we, DOA record. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to pick from like the first hundred, but Hardcore eighty one by DOA is on there, but it's way down the list. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, anything's up for grabs really, but cool. yeah. It's it's yeah, TSOL Dance with Me, which is also kind of a weird record too. W- wouldn't have done that one. It's uh, no, yeah, <laughs> not, not for me. That's not that's does my my TSOL fandom does not include that record. <laughs> I mean, we've got the punchline by Minutemen. Yeah, when they were more of a hardcore band. Yeah, um, but it's not like it's not one of the standout Minutemen records. It's not double nickels or anything, right? Yeah, like what happens if you look at EPs, Dylan? Is there anything over there that's like you know well known? Because you know hardcore was pretty useful with the ep you know it was a pretty well good it's tool. minor threat by minor threat yeah okay yeah there's, the very there's first your big minor. ones yeah um as well as in my eyes um and then there's uh signals calls and marches by mission of burma yeah i guess if you go eps there's actually Dick some Kennedy's. good stuff yeah and god we trust six pack by black flag joy Minutemen. yeah 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 so there's a little bit i guess if you if you wanted hardcore you'd want to go with an ep but like you know yeah. it'd be less than 10 minutes of music yeah. to really talk right. about <laughs> yeah uh though that mission of burma first record or signals calls and marches came out that year that'd be a cool one but fantastic yeah, yeah. so like yeah it as far as albums go yeah it's a strange year for for punk though i mean you know in 81 punk doesn't have like the most like defined you know sound which even even now it doesn't really but 
Yeah. Well, to Dylan's point, yeah, it was huge, huge for post-punk. And I'm like a huge Swell Maps fan, but there was not like a... I think the Swell Maps might have they might have like uh, released some weird compilation of their stuff, and so I figured, oh, if nothing else, I can get like Train to Marineville or something. And but no, that wasn't even up there. So yeah, I think we've co- we've covered 1981 in the past. Uh, I think we did the Echo and the is it is that Echo and the Bunnymen the one we did Heaven up here? Yes. Yeah. Um, which is a great record. Um, yeah, we covered Juju pretty extensively on like a, we did a Susie and the Banshees kind of retrospective and then nice yeah i don't i don't know that we've really hit on 81 all that often though no maybe it's just we've mentioned stuff like you know only a lad and talk 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 you know so yeah yeah yeah, good stuff of course but you know there's always there's always good stuff every year so two i think according to this list two different eyeless and gaza records who are another weird like deep cut post-punk band favorite of mine Yeah, you know, they're one of those bands that I've seen their name like a billion times, like going mm-hmm. through these lists, but I've never listened to them myself. Are they, I've always seen them kind of in the like gothy lane. Yes. Is, that, is that right? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Sort of like Joseph K. It's like gothy post-punk, not quite as spooky as Bauhaus, right. um, mm-hmm. but for sure in that uh, same area code. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, like once you get past kind of the first couple like pages of results, you get cool stuff like the beat, you know, what happened. Mm-hmm. But what which is not even really my favorite beat record, but No. <laughs> I don't know that it's anybody's. <laughs> no, it's all it's all about the first one. Yeah, it's the first one and then Special Service has like Yeah. All the hit songs on it. Yeah, the, the, the radio yeah. songs. Yeah. But what happened was like this weird, like kind of middle record that Doors of Your Heart is like the big one, maybe? Uh <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I love that record. I love all three records, but you know, not essential listening on that one. But yeah, so yeah, we'll we'll talk about the actual record you picked. So we gave you eighty one, and you selected "Wild Gift" by X. from Los Angeles, California, because they are still active. They formed in 1977. This record was released May 1981 on Slash Records. This is their second studio album. The personnel on the album is John Doe on bass and vocals, Exine Cervenka on vocals, Billy Zoom on guitar, and DJ Bonebreak on drums. The album was produced by Ray Manzarek of The Doors. And we previously covered their album More Fun in the New World with Elise from Oceanator. That was maybe almost two years ago at this point, um, which is their fourth album. So uh, I'll save the other little stats I have on it. So you kind of touched on it. Usually I ask the first question is like, what made you choose this album specifically to talk about? But you kind of mentioned that there. For sure, yeah. Um, So do you, let's see. Was the first time listening to it when 
you found a copy of it? Was that what you were saying? Yeah, it definitely would have been in the mid to late 80s because I was in college starting in 85. I am an old old man <laughs> uh so yeah and i told uh, i told you my buddy had that more fun in the new world and that sent me off on this this quest to find other stuff uh so yeah it would have been mid to late 80s when i when i discovered it and uh i'm not sure if x were still a going concern at that point uh the point when i discovered the record i didn't see them live until probably around 2000 i want to say like hmm. the first time that they reformed yeah and they absolutely blew me away like even then as older folks um and billy zoom had to have been in his 50s maybe 60s by that point i don't know how old he is precisely but they fucking ripped they were fantastic live yeah dylan when did, when did we see them like a couple like it's five years ago five or six years maybe? ago yeah yeah it was it was before the new record so before yeah. alphabet land it was but before yeah i moved so yeah. it was probably 2016 or 2017 and even then, it was just like, they're still amazing. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, really impressive. Yeah. Like, all like, you know, Billy, Billy Zoom, I think, was sitting on a, a stool the whole time. But, you know, like, good for him, man. He's still out there, you know, staring at everyone in the audience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, Smiling the at everyone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, okay, I'll ask Dylan this. Um, Prior to re-listening to the album for this week's episode, what were your... Th- I, know, I know you're a big X fan, so like we've covered that in the past, but Dylan, what were your thoughts on Wild Gift before re-listening for the show? Um, this is one that I don't think I've ever really properly rated. Um, I don't think that I've really absorbed it um, the way that I have some of their other records, Los Angeles um, and Under the Big Black Sun especially. Um, I think that this record falling in between those two kind of like monumental and like defining career defining records is, is a big part of why I have really not had a solid idea of what this record is. Um, I just, I think, I think I thought, Oh, it has a couple songs, but overall it's not great. Um, and I do, I do always kind of recall that it has maybe a weaker production uh, compared to the two on either side. So that that's kind of lent, lent, uh, lends itself to my sort of disregard for this record. Yeah, it was one that, um, you know, I, I definitely have listened to it before multiple times. Um, but yeah, it was always one that I, in my mind, was like, I put it lower. Like I, I'm a bigger fan of Under the Big Black Sun. Like I think it's probably my favorite X record, and then Los Angeles being you know the debut with all the big songs on it. And so like yeah, my my mind I was like oh yeah, and it's one of the first four, so it's all I it's a good one you know for sure. But uh, yeah, it was always one that I I hadn't visited this one as frequently. Um, Ian, where does this one kind of rank for you in the? Uh, pantheon of x records uh. <laughs> i mean I, th- I think i agree with both of you guys right down the line i mean i don't think it's that much weaker than los angeles but los angeles like the iconic debut you know bangers back to front uh we've already talked about more fun and how iconic that is and they were really starting to expand the scope of of what they could do what they thought they could could pull off it gets you know it gets darker and moodier with like uh uh, Hungry Wolf and like Dancing with Tears in My Eyes, like you know more 
ballady and and just more ambitious. And this one kind of gets lost in between those. I, I absolutely agree with what I think what Jordan said uh, about that. I will say, though, I mean, there are some iconic songs in here. You got adult books, you got white girl, sort of the two slower, I don't know, introspective ballady things that Exene um, handles lead vocals on. Uh, and it's also got, um, gosh, there was one other thing that I wanted to, to call out, uh, in the South that I call home when our love passed out on the couch, like, you know, the uptempo bangers that sound like they would be not out of place on Los Angeles. So, um, yeah, I think it's, a, a it's probably, you know, like both of you guys said, sort of maybe one or two tiers beneath, uh, the first and third records, but, um, uh, it d- definitely deserves probably more consideration than folks uh folks give it yeah it's funny it's not like it's not ain't love grand or like jesus you know records where like (laughs) they change their sounds so much that people are like what are y'all doing you know but yeah and it's and it's between like the it's the second record so it it, i wouldn't call this a sophomore slump because sophomore slump implies that the record's not good so that's that's not true at all this is a really great record um but it's probably the one i'll continue to go to less often out of the first four. Cause I think even yep. like more songs is, is they experiment a lot on that record and they do things that they haven't done before. And I feel like yep. this record, they try and do a little experimentation on it. Like there's some darker moments on this album, but I don't know, maybe like the hook, like the, the, the songs just weren't quite there yet. I think they, they nail it better on the next one. Yeah. There is some stuff that, that there was some material here that were holdovers though. I think, yeah, was it adult books or was it mm-hmm. white girl? One of those rele- was released on a danger house single in 77. I want to say, and then they re-recorded it. Um, it may have been the white girl that was released as a single. Um, it was, with yeah. The, with we're desperate on the B side or something like that. So it was, um, I saw this, it was uh, adult books and we're desperate were a single in 76 on Dan- on yeah. Danger house. And, uh, right. I think white girl was the album single okay, yeah. for this one, mm-hmm. which, yeah, Odd choice, I think. Yeah. For album single. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was sort of the more you know the the slower, not you know not under not sub two minute like punk number, so you can understand why maybe that they they or the label picked it there or Manzarek told them to pick it, but uh, yeah, not exactly like poppy and accessible. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting too that they they held on to uh, you know adult books and were desperate because and didn't use them on the first yeah L- LP. I wonder but what then, the story is there. And they chose to use it on here. Yeah. Got to be a story. I Yeah, I'd be curious to know if there was a specific reason. I mean, I guess it's it's possible that it was just like they had just done it as a single, those songs as singles, and they had new stuff, and they were like, this is our big record. We got to have, we got to put everything on here, like yeah. all of our new stuff on here. And then they got around to doing this the second record, and they're like, well, let's, we're playing that song still mm-hmm. we're playing both of those songs still yeah. uh let's do them maybe do them the justice of a, a a proper album treatment yeah that's the most logical reason too plus you know you, you usually use up a lot of your material with your first record so you know yeah. it's probably easier to be like hey well we have these songs that you know yeah <laughs> they're good we like them still so let's let's, let's clean them up we got to pad this thing out. Well, it is. It's it's 13 songs in like 32 minutes or something. It's almost yeah. like mm-hmm. it's almost like Rain and Blood for Christ's sake. It's a short record. <laughs> and this is the immediate follow-up. Like this is like mm-hmm. a year later. Right. Like That sounds right. Not 
not even quite a year later because, well, a little over a year because Los Angeles was in April and then of 80 and then this was in May, May, which they recorded in March. So. Slash Records, which uh, the first record was also on Slash, and I was just kind of curious what else they put out that year. And uh, the big albums that Slash put out were: there's a Blasters record that came out that year, and there is a Germs EP, which is the what we do in secret. No, what we do is secret. Twelve uh, inch EP, which actually features uh, DJ Bonebreak on drums on the song Round and Round. So I was like, oh wow, Slash was like tied in to like what was going on in the LA scene for sure. Yes. That is something that we will discuss on our Patreon this week. I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll say it here. Cause it'll already been posted by the time we, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this episode goes up. So yeah, we, uh, we're doing a, a dive on, uh, we're doing a rewatch of the decline of Western civilization. Ooh, nice. So like X is featured in there and, uh, the germs are featured in there too. And yeah, so it's a very LA hard, punk scene specific documentary uh i actually have not rewatched it yet dylan so i'll have to be doing that tonight but <laughs> yeah revisiting this record though i was really it was kind of like listening it was kind of like listening to a record that i knew really well but also kind of like listening to a record i'd never heard before <laughs> because like i definitely knew a lot of these songs and i was really kind of shocked at how many of the songs I was like singing along to. And I'm like, I know, I guess I just know these as being kind of like songs that they play live and songs that, you know, the standout tracks that I've heard. Um, but then there are kind of, there are the songs that I don't know quite as well from that, from being their big hits or being singles or being live staples that were a lot of fun. And it was like hearing something totally new from them that, you know, I've heard before, but like, maybe not really paid as much attention to um like, like songs like universal corner um yeah. beyond and back a lot of stuff on the b-side like back to base and year one like i was like i've heard this record before i don't remember these songs well you guys i don't know if you're like me but for a while the only copy of this record that i had was a cd where it was los angeles and wild gift like, yeah 
pressed together because each of those was only about a half hour long. So somebody, it might've been Rhino or somebody else released them as like as a, you know, the nice price two for one mm-hmm. deal. That's like, I think that's a lot of people's only exposure to it, like pre-streaming. Yeah. Yeah. There was, that's the way I am with the cramps. Like there's psychedelic jungle and, uh, one of the other ones, like the shorter releases. It's like, it's released the same way. It's like two yeah. of the albums on at the same time. Yeah, and plus, you know, yeah, seeing a lot of live footage of them, you know, I'm like, okay, yeah, I know adult books. I know, you know, In This House That I Go Home, which I feel like is like a classic X song for sure. I was looking at, um, listening to the album too, I was just like, I heard a couple things on there that I was like, I could hear people who would later kind of borrow from X. So like, I feel like uh, we're desperate. Like, there's like this like, strumming pattern that they he does on the song that i feel like john reese kind of like based his entire (laughs) musical (laughs) output on (laughs) it is it is a very it is a very speedo Mm -hmm. riff it's just that kind of like choppy slashing and he's got the slide part to it um but then he also has that like talking about his rockabilly chops and like his uh playing like a hollow body gretch like he has that neck pickup just like classic rockabilly clean little low riff that's so cool billy zoom is such an amazing guitar player i mean truly really has some effortless killer hooks that stick with you forever and he he wants you to know that too (laughs) with his he smiles at you because he doesn't want what was it we were talking with uh john from timeshares about a social distortion record and we and we got off on a tangent on x and uh how billy zoom like did some interview where he was saying that (laughs) he he smiles on stage because all the rock guitar players were making all these crazy faces whenever they play guitar and he just wanted to show that you could just like how good a guitar player he was that he could just smile and play these riffs and (laughs) (laughs) rules i love it uh, even on uh, in this house that I call home, I also noticed there's like a little riff in there that D Boone definitely was like, I'm gonna use that for for double nickels, and I'm trying to think of what exactly it's on double nickels for sure. Which you know they cite X as major influences, so it's not like it's outright stealing. You know that's the record that has history lesson and name drops John uh, John Doe. So yeah, there's mm-hmm. just like a little riff in there. I was like, oh, I know that sound very well. <laughs> But there's a lot of that. I mean, this is mm-hmm. X were such a quintessential LA band, and they really they tap into the aggression and desperation and rough edges of LA hardcore and like the germs and Black Flag and but then they also bring in their like you know, they were playing shows with I mean they had the the blasters as a side project and you know they played shows with dwight yoakam and they were plugged into rockabilly and country and i mean billy zoom played rock legitimately played rockabilly records in the 60s and um they and i feel like there's there's even kind of like that there's so much of that like la rock club and i mean having the ray manzarek connection with the doors and you get kind of that loungy kind of vibe from them too they they were really onto something and watching interviews with them watching the interview in um decline they they don't seem like they're that smart (laughs) but they're really well cultured 
Mm. And they're all, and they're just like, they're just these like naturally curious people. And I mean, it, you know, that interview, they're like drunk and giving each other stick and poke tattoos. And, <laughs> but they're just like, they're just like really inquisitive and like curious and thoughtful people, but maybe aren't like, you know, well-educated. It's interesting. And they would have been super young, I feel like, at that point, too. Like, early, mid-20s tops, right? And certainly no older. Their ages are very... Well, besi- besides Billy, yeah. Billy yeah. is a lot older, but I think... I feel like you, I feel like John might be... John was born in 54. So, yeah, so he would have been 24, 25, yeah. around ex- the time that Decline ex- came out. Yeah, Exene was probably younger than him. Um, I read an interview... Uh, yeah, it would have been twenty. Yeah, they would have been in their early twenties. Yeah, I I was reading an interview. It was um like I I tried to pull up like interviews from the time period. And I think I found it. I think it was New York Times that I found an interview with them in like in eighty one or I think it was probably around an interview for this record. And um, it said that uh, John and Exine were married. And I don't maybe I just don't know my ex history. They were married? I didn't know that they were actually married. Yeah. They uh, were I'm not sure when they got married. Um because they were dating pretty much from the beginning of the band. Um and they lived together in West Hollywood and I think got married at some point and divorced and she got married to Vigo Mortensen. Yeah, yeah. In like the mid eighties. Yeah. I knew about that. So I was I guess I I knew they were a relationship together, but yeah, I, I guess I didn't realize that uh they who were actually married at the time. Um, but there is like an interesting like little spot in there where it's like, oh, hmm, man, I can wonder why the relationship didn't work out. Cause like in the interview, they're talking about the song white girl, which is about Lorna doom from the germs. Like John wrote it about her. And, um, the interviewer was like, oh, so, you know, does it make you feel weird about, you know, your husband writing about another woman? <laughs> uh, she was like, no, nah, it doesn't bother me that much. Or, or she says something on the lines of like, yeah, I feel like we're open about our crushes. And then John turns around and says, no, no, we're not. We're not. <laughs> <laughs> Big yikes. <laughs> I was like, well, I wonder why that didn't work out. <laughs> because he says something else in there he's talking about uh he likes the term punk because it's something that uh, linda ronstadt would never call herself but she would maybe use like new wave as a term to describe something she was doing <laughs> so that was like his like so we can't be like linda ronstadt we have to be punk and <laughs> not new wave <laughs> 
It's funny that Linda would have been even willing to call herself New Wave, just considering where she eventually ended up. I mean, <laughs> singing it like Bill Clinton's inauguration or whatever it was. <laughs> um, looking at a couple, like, I don't know what you would describe them, accolades that the record has, uh, it, it peaked at number 165 on the Billboard 200, which I'd say that's a pretty good, I mean, for a punk record in 81, that's pretty impressive to even make the Billboard 200. And then it was ranked number 334 on Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. Uh, that's probably been updated a couple times since it was originally on there. They actually had like two of their records on there. I think Los Angeles was much higher up on the list. But interesting that Rolling Stone Magazine put two X records on the 500 Greatest of All Time. Pretty cool. Yeah. Even though I'm like, oh, you, I, I, I'm weird when it comes to lists like that. I'm like... Well, no repeat artists on the list. All original, one entries only. <laughs> um, I was looking at a couple other things. So uh, John Doe and DJ actually played on the Flesh Eaters album that came out that year, A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die. Um, I re-listened, I listened to that one too, just to kind of get an idea of what else they were doing. But very, it's like the same style of music as X, but also vastly different sounding. Yeah, I was never. I remember the Flesh Eaters coming through New Orleans a bunch. I don't know if they were from. I guess they were from L.A., but they used to they used to play a lot. Um, yeah, it was uh, not anything that ever caught my attention. I'm not sure that I've ever heard the record. I probably should check it out. It's a lot more experimental than something like X would have been putting out. So that makes sense. Yeah, it's just interesting that they're both on the. You know, John and DJ are on that whole record, and yeah, and D, like I said, DJ was on the Germs song, but he was also on like two. Jezza X singles, who was also in the Germs. So there was like two seven inches that year. And then Ray Manzarek produced an album in eighty one, a mini album in eighty one by a band called the Zippers. Mm. Not sure. even sure I've ever heard the name. Were they another LA punk band? Yeah, I think they're another LA band. Like that, I think that's all they did though, was like okay. that that mini LP is how it's described. It's interesting. I guess he was trying to make that I think they're described as like a power pop band. Mm. I'm pretty comfortable saying that Manzarek's production work with X is the best thing he ever did. <laughs> I'm, I'm confident in, in saying that. Not a big Doors guy. No. I I recognize that his his importance and influence, and I recognize the Doors' influence on, like, you know, Patti Smith and a lot of stuff that I do love, but I don't like the Doors. I don't like the way, I don't like the way that Ray plays keys in the Doors. Oh, I love the way he plays keys in X. Yeah. And I mean, there's like several years in between the last yeah. Doors records and, you know, him playing on that X record. And I definitely think he was like trying to do a certain kind of of organ playing for mm-hmm. them on that record, which it's interesting that they worked with him and they didn't bring that organ back. I don't know if it was like, we can't pay Ray <laughs> for this one or if they were they wanted to separate themselves from that sound and be like, cause they weren't using an organ live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My appreciation for the doors begins and ends with the, the there's an amazing Iggy pop story in uh, uh, please kill me <laughs> where he talks about light. My fire had become a huge hit and Iggy was uh, uh, in LA and watching the doors play a gig. And it was like, just, he said it was just like tons of frat boys and straights who had all come to the show because Light My Fire had become this huge hit. And Jim Morrison 
refused to play the song at first. And when the band finally did convince him to play the song, he sang the entire song in like an incredibly high pitched Minnie Mouse voice in order to piss people <laughs> off. That's like one of my one of the uh, please kill me stories that stuck with me. I was like, you know what, Jim Morrison, not all bad. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly bad, on balance bad, but like, you know, there was some good in him, clearly, if he was going to do that. I like the idea that even he was like, what? No, this isn't the type of audience I want. <laughs> yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. So I did. I did want to mention. Uh, I can't believe I haven't mentioned it before. Now, um, re-listening to this record. I mean, obviously, one of the appeals of X uh, in every era is the insane vocal interplay between mm-hmm. John and Exine. And I and I, none of us have brought it up yet. So I'll I'll bring it up. Listening back this time, it's just what fucking planet is Exine from and where did she come up with these like anti-harmonies? They're incredible. They always work. Like even when they're, um, you know, even when they're rubbing and clashing against the more traditional sort of vocal melodies that John has written and is performing, like it never, it never sounds wrong, even when it's obviously wrong. And I I don't know of another vocalist. uh, I can't think of another object lesson in, you know, vocal anti-harmony the way that Exine pulls it off. It's it's incre- it's singular, and uh, I, I appreciate it now as much as I did when I first heard them 30-something years ago. Yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> it absolutely shouldn't work. Yeah. Like, I, and you're right. There's nothing, there's absolutely nothing else. There's no one else that does this. <laughs> like, because even when people try to do it, it doesn't work. Nope. Mm-hmm. But... It, you know, it, I guess because it's like, I feel like any time you hear it, it's flat, I guess, is what it is. Because I think she even said it in, in that same interview I was reading earlier. She was she was like, yeah, people say I sing flat, but I like how I sing. And yeah. it's like, well, I mean, yeah, she sounds amazing. But it is. There is this strange, I don't know. It It's flat, but it still manages to harmonize, but also not at the same time. Because John yeah. has a weird vocal delivery too. Because mm-hmm. it's not even, it's not even just flat. There are parts where it's just wrong. <laughs> Straight up, <laughs> it's just like it, that's not the note. And yet, <laughs> it it works every time somehow. Yeah, because I wish when you, I, sorry, when when you hear flat singers, you go, "Oh, that's flat." Whoa, it's that's terrible! Flat. It's terrible. Yeah, <laughs> like stick your fingers in your ears. Yeah, and like you know this this time period in like punk like. I can definitely think of like, like when it's a singular like melody line where they're just like where they're pitchy and they're like that works. Like the Gun Club is great. It, you know, he's like he's not singing the melody, but it's great. It really works. And like, I mean, the Germs like Darby <laughs> didn't even really words. try. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just made guttural noises, but it works. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's just like that's a melody like that's the melody line or like maybe not even a melody but it's just like that's the only vocal line there's not someone else singing a written melody and then someone just not doing harmony just wailing yeah Mm -hmm. i wonder i wonder if like when they were tracking i mean everybody's still alive we should ask them before they pass on but like like who laid who laid their vocal down first and if like if john did his thing could Exine have John in her headphones while she was singing, or did she have to do it completely independent without hearing him? Like I'm, you know, I would love like a musicologist to 
you know, somebody with like a advanced musical theory degree, like break this down for us, like why this works versus anything else that's similar to this. You know, if anybody else tried this, as you've said, yeah. uh, it, it would sound terrible and often does. I wonder. I mean, I, I think I feel like maybe the only I feel like maybe the only analog to make is like comparison to make is like and this feels like a really feels like a stretch. And I don't think that it, it informed what they were trying to do. But like there is definitely some free jazz Sure. That accomplishes this with instruments and not voice, where you have someone playing, you know, not really playing a harmony, just kind of right. playing around a harmony. But that's even that's coming from like the well-informed position of like, I know what the melody or what the harmony I'm supposed to be playing is, but I'm playing the the notes either side of it right. intentionally. And that's not what she's doing. <laughs> <laughs> and the only thing I can think is like, Maybe John wrote harmonies for her and then she just couldn't sing them. And he was like, that sounds fine. Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> I like that theory. I'd be, uh, I, I'd be curious to hear if that was, uh, you know, has any credence. Yeah, I feel like there's got to be interviews where they kind of really talk about their process. So I feel like it's just a matter of, are there any books on the band? There has to be. I feel like right? any any band of a certain you know of a certain mm-hmm. stature gets a book, even if it's just a, a thirty three and a third book or something. It's got to yeah. be. There's there. there's uh, the unheard music, um, which there's also more fun in the new world, which is by John Doe, no, oh. uh, and someone else talking about L.A. punk in general. Awesome. Oh yeah. Um, Oh, they did under the they did a book called Under the Big Black Sun as well. I think really the only should track those down and read those. The only LA specific book that I think I've read is We Have the Neutron Bomb, which is great. I highly recommend that one for like the mask and the early LA punk scenes. I learned a ton. It's fascinating. Yeah, uh, speaking of the early LA scene, there's there's a track on this album where they mention the lead singer of the Screamers. Uh, what is his name? I'm blanking on his name, but same. And that's one of those bands that like the only thing thing that really exists by them is like bootlegs, right? Like, yeah, there's that weird live album that you know somehow got released and the sound quality is terrible, but you can yeah you can sort of understand uh, how fucking out they were <laughs> relative to the rest of what was happening in L.A. or like anywhere on the planet in 1976. I remember watching like a, a Target video of the Screamers where they're performing, oh, yeah. and that might be probably the best quality audio they that have. That might be the thing that I'm talking about. In fact, <laughs> I've never seen the video though. Yeah, I mean, who knows? It could be. I think there's a couple live things out there, but yeah, the this was like, wow, this is really cool, and like I like what he's doing. Very and, theatrical and crazy. And it's like, why did no one capture this? It's it's interesting that like. I don't know. They were just too out there, I guess, to really get, you know, anything in the studio together. But yeah, that early LA punk stuff is very, very different because it like, you know, once like Black Flag kind of like took over what LA punk was, you know, post after this point, you know? Yeah. Those Orange County kids hijacked everything (laughs) for, for better or, and for in many ways for worse. I mean, (laughs) the the Huntington Beach shuffle, you know, like all the... The weird kids, the queer kids, the people of color, the women, like they all got um, sort of pushed aside so that the white boys could, you know, have their fun in a lot of ways. I mean, that's what ended up happening with that hardcore scene in in a lot of ways. I mean, 
you know, we did, we did get some amazing shit out of it. We got circle jerks and black flag and, and that stuff, but it, you know, at what cost? Yeah. Yeah. Cause the and mask scene, like that early scene was like very diverse, very mixed, like a lot of queer kids, uh, a lot of Mexican and Asian kids. Um, and you don't see much of that, uh, post 81, I guess. Which I feel like you even see, you know, some of the bigger, you know, figureheads of the scene. Like, they try and push for that. Mm-hmm. But it just did I don't know. I feel like they were kind of just pushing against, yeah, the tide. Of- I mean, it wasn't safe, man. You could not, you know, those places were like, terrifying. And I, I even experienced it going to hardcore shows um, in the New York area, like, in the late 80s. And I'm a white guy. Uh, mm-hmm. And it wasn't safe, you know, if, uh, if you had long hair, if you looked weird, you know, you were... You, your physical safety, you know, could have been compromised. So I understand why it got uh, more homogeneous after that in a lot of ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately. I think there's even, like, I, I started to watch The Decline last night. Just I think I was trying to just to pull up to see where I could stream it and watch it. And uh, the very, very top of it, they talk, like, somebody's, like, talking about, who let all these long hairs in here? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, God, it was so that strict, huh? Yeah. I'm, yeah. here, I'm here to tell you. I mean, I wasn't there for that, but right, it was not, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like the the advent of the internet and, you know, everybody getting exposed to everything at all the time. Um, I mean, you're, you're talking about target videos really reminded me of like, you used to have to search for this stuff. You used to have to order shit out of the back of a maximum rock and roll or flip side or whatever to find this stuff. And, um, there, you know, uh, boundaries were getting crossed. Like I was talking about at the top of the show with like, you know, metal and funk together. Um, yeah. but yeah, there were certain, there were certain lines that just, you know, you didn't cross, uh, or, you know, there, there, there was some, there was some risk or some danger associated with crossing certain lines, like having long hair and going to a Cro-Mags gig. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which to me also then makes it weird too, that like this cowboy band was like, it's rockabilly band was like kind yeah. of accepted in that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, early early punk before the rules had been established uh, yeah. was a weird fucking thing, man. You could have bands like uh, the Screamers and up up north in Northern California. You could have the the Tubes and Crime, and then a little bit later, as you get into hardcore, the DKs. But like when it was, there was way artier, way more queer, way weirder mm-hmm. uh, pre pre hardcore. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like even New York was the same way. You know, like oh, the CBGB scene was like that. Yeah, and then. I'm trying to think of scenes that were already, like, kind of like that. DC. I mean, DC would eventually get arty. Yeah. I think they went back more sensitive, but, you know, started out as being very much, like, aggressive, masculine, Mm -hmm. tribal mentalities. Oh, yeah. There used to be those huge fights. I mean, you know, Boston or New York would would come, come down or, you know. Yeah, New York would go up to Boston, like it, yeah, and and as, yeah, as a lot of, a lot of the t- I feel like one dynamic at play is that you know people don't hang around like you 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 dip into the hardcore scene for a year or two and then you age out of it or you you go off to school or you do something else with DC like people just stuck around and and Ian and Gee and those people um, got older, evolved, um, and you know changed and and stuck around and you know uh whereas in a lot of other places people didn't so mm-hmm. you only ever get the uh the 17 to 22 year old white males who sort of define your scene if that <laughs> happens right yeah i guess yeah having kind of like those figureheads in dc like kind of shepherd like 
And it helped that they also had this, especially Ian had this, I won't, I won't say it's like preaching, but he had this like espousing his beliefs in a way that it's just like, it made you go, eh, you know, he, he might be right about, it. you know, like he wasn't. So I'm sure him like talking about like good, important stuff, probably he's what kept that scene that way. Sure. And Discord, you can't, you can't uh, underestimate mm-hmm. the, the impact that that label as an institution had either. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, Yeah very interesting like you know it's still trying to define what which even in 81 they weren't even trying to define anything they were just trying to literally be the exact opposite of major record label deal stuff like you know they were talking about how one of the big things that that uh at least was driving john doe into listen you know hanging out in the punk scene was that like the the money you know like mm-hmm. the bands would be spending millions of dollars on records and then, like, punk bands were, like, doing it for, you know, Econo style. You know, the, the Miniman classic, you know, We Jam Econo. Like, so there was this, like, pseudo-anti-capitalist, like, lane in punk rock. Yeah. It got abandoned pretty quick when Electra started, uh, you know, <laughs> waving big checks at them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, which it, is something Which is something that they've, they have talked about. They're, they are aware of that, where they're, like, they were, they were really critical of of money and in being you know really capitalist and then they were like like yeah but we you know we kind of sold out too so <laughs> it's very easy to wear now yeah it's very easy to talk about selling out when you're 22 and you live in a flat with like seven other people and then right. if you have you know get married and have a kid and have responsibilities then uh your perspective shifts pretty pretty quickly <laughs> and then you know they're being offered the ability to play music for a living too Fucking so a, like, man that has to be like a well i get to do my i get to do this you know you know so like all right i'll give up a little bit of liberties if it means or, you know or creative freedom if it means you know i can keep making music you know so it's tough i mean we live in a capitalist society so it's hard to blame anybody for <laughs> falling into it you know amen <laughs> the structure is there to make everyone become capitalists so and i mean you know you can also appreciate that these freaks kind of wasted Electra's money. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> they didn't really stop being the weirdos that they are. Mm-hmm. And they really did just kind of like make records that they wanted to make. Yep. Yeah, I wonder if John Doe's ever had like a day job post, you know, post X. I mean, he, you know, he acts and, and still does music and does the Sadies and all these incredible side projects. I wonder if he's like had a day job in the last 35 years i kind of suspect not what a cool fucking existence right <laughs> that's living living the goddamn dream and you know you can't resent anybody for that and even for being a guy who like acted and was on like film and television like even his his solo music like he's not like a mega star in the sense that like he could walk down the street and no um, people are not gonna know who he is for the most part you know yeah, he's, he's just to, like that guy. Oh, he's the guy from Roadhouse, maybe. You might. Yeah, right. You, know, <laughs> you might recognize him as. <laughs> yeah, and like even it, in the music scene that he's in, like the country kind of folky thing, like he's not like a massive name there. So, no. No, people know him as the guy from that. Yeah, right. <clears throat> but yeah. is it any surprise that he would got work as an actor, though? If you watch <laughs> interviews with him, he's very charming. Yeah, this oozes charisma. Yeah, yeah. So what, you, what you need is a front man as well. It's the same game. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think I hit all of my notes on the record. Is there anything else anybody else wanted to bring up? 
No, I just wanted to gush about Exine's vocals some, so I got yeah. to do that. Um, <laughs> we talked about Billy's amazing guitar playing. Killer rhythm section. Like, John is never going to, like, uh, uh, win any YouTube contest for, like, bass shredding, but he's a very, <laughs> very, like, workman-like, capable bass player, and him and DJ, like, locking up as a rhythm section or rock fucking solid, which, you know, that's the engine of any band. And yeah. I just love them. We haven't even talked about their lyrics, which are incredible. They, like, they, yeah. They, 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 you know explore this this i don't know it sounds corny but like the seedy underside of la and uh in the in a you know like bukowski or raymond chandler did in their time and and that's awesome like um you know think what you want about bukowski and i certainly have my opinions (laughs) but um uh it does like i know i think about a song like the have nots which i think is on more fun um where the Exene is just listing all the fucking dive bars like on the strip in LA. And it's just amazing. But when she talks about, you know, when the, when the barmaid knows your name and like, you know, you have a regular stool at the bar and like, it just con- it evokes, it's so evocative. You just get these, um, uh, really vivid pictures of what these people are like. They're real people. Um, you really see them They're Yeah. The, their lyrics evoke these images in a way that very few bands of any genre did. And certainly like almost no punk bands that I can think of. It's, it's a powerful thing. Yeah. They have, they have these interesting songs that are about like doing drugs and having sex and like going to bars and like just being like gritty, gross people that, <laughs> but then they have these like amazing little phrases and like, um, I want to say we're desperate. There's one of the lines. The second verse is, it's so interesting to me because it's Coca-Cola and a Motorola kitchen, Naga hide and a tie-dye t-shirt. Fuck. Last night, everything broke. Dude, like, that line is uh, like, if I could write one line that is as beautiful as last night, everything broke, I would just fucking retire on the spot because it is perfect. It's so beautiful. And they have, you know, they fucking have those in every song. Yeah. yeah. But that the Naga hide and a tie-dye t-shirt, I'm like, well, I need to buy a tie-dye t-shirt and a Naga <laughs> jacket. It just sounds so cool. So fucking cool. <laughs> And John and like, writes most of the lyrics, right? Like, I mean, from the the impression I get is that they were pretty collaborative. No, on they're credited as the writers on everything, mm-hmm. uh, both John and Exine. Um, Exine talks about um, when our love passed out on the couch, mm-hmm. um, and kind of like what that song meant. And I think she had a lot to do with. I think she had a lot to do with the writing. Um, I think her lyrics tended to be more broad and not quite as like detailed and wordy as John's. I think hers are a little bit more getting at like thoughts and feelings more than describing places and people. Well, she also gets on like kind of bigger subjects. Like I think there's a song on this record that like specifically talks about like how women are not as well listened to or regarded as I can't think of which song it is like in, in like, you know, women can't do the job the men can do, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like she was approaching more, whereas like John Doe was kind of like trying to like create a scene almost with his lyrics. I think hers are Mm -hmm. more trying to get at a bigger emotion. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was an incredible uh, uh, partnership for, you know, regardless of how the, what the division of labor specifically was. Yeah. Those fucking lyrics, man, they can't be fucked with. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I love any kind of lyric that, like, evokes an image in your head. Like, that's a talent. Like, the, you know, so bands, so few bands can actually really, you know, do, or writers. Yep. I think, too, that comes a little bit from the country and rockabilly influence, because a lot of that stuff is very... Sure you know imagery places stories and those kind of songs so yep and 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 wordplay and yeah um because like the once over twice like that's such a clever that's great lyric i i just heard the sad song by another band sung by another man he gave me the once over twice like that's such a like loretta Mm. lynn (laughs) kind of lyric it's (laughs) absolutely from the country western tradition yeah oh you mentioned Loretta Lynn. I actually listened to her record Fist City yesterday. That song, Fist City, is so fucking good. You want to go to Fist City? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize it was that kind of program, you guys. <laughs> Let's go. Loretta Lynn's going to take you to Fist City. Well, all right. Now you're talking. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, yeah, that record's like full of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I think that I think we hit the big things here. Yeah, I think so too. Um, well, cool. So, uh, Ian, tell people where to let's see, like find and follow you online, or you know, get records, all that good stuff. Oh yeah, um, I don't know. Probably the the clearinghouse uh, for information about me is probably Instagram, and I am at Morbid Kales. Uh, it's, it's like the Celtic frost record, but kales instead of tails. Cause I, um, <laughs> I'm vegan. So morbid kales and, uh, in my bio, you can find links to strange light, no lights, Callenwald city, interesting times gang stuff, um, collapse culture and anything else about me. So keep your eyes peeled for new releases from interesting times gang coming out in the forthcoming couple of months. Um, like I said, there's the, the world needs laughter, um, very uh jehu influenced um punk rock stuff by strange light uh yeah and piecework um last year's kowloon record are probably the all the things that i would like to plug i think that's it i'm so uh thanks you guys for having me on this was a whole lot of fun and i learned a lot yeah yeah appreciate you coming on for sure um last thing i always ask is to have a guest shout out a charity or a non-profit they'd like to bring some attention to so do you have one Oh, uh, mm, uh, mm, <laughs> really good question. Uh, oh, I don't know. I do a lot of political organizing with uh, the Democratic Socialists of America. So if you uh, are interested in, uh, you know, if you, if you uh, let's see, if you would have voted for Bernie in 2020, had he got the nomination, uh, you will you will be happy to. Uh, find kindred spirits and fellow travelers in DSA. So look up a chapter in your uh, area or go to dsausa.org. Hell yeah. I'll make sure to include links to that in the show notes. Thanks. Uh, Awesome. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Um, My pleasure. Glad we got to talk to you and um, many thanks to Joel from Ancient Shores for kind of setting this up. Absolutely. (laughs) Shout out Ancient Shores. All right, fellas. Thanks for having me. This is a blast. (laughs) 